Let's open in prayer together. Father, thank you for this new day, beautiful weather, beautiful reminder of your goodness and your grace. And Lord, each passing season just reminds us that uh, you're in control and there's things that, that we can't control. And so Lord, help us to always tune our hearts to you. And especially today, as we uh, gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, may we just reflect on your goodness and be fed from your word and fellowship together and sing praises together and Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to bless this time now in our Bible study. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, great to see everybody. Good crowd this morning and uh, looking forward to continuing our discussion of uh, the eternal state and what is coming down the pike with uh, what we can look forward to someday in, in the heavenlies and what a great, uh, great subject. I, as I was preparing this week, it, it just continually strikes me is just how blessed we are to serve a God who is going to make all things new once again. You know, we, we, we are living in pretty perplexing times. And uh, speaking of that, I just, uh, just finished, uh, we're waiting on the first proof copy, but for, just finished Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist. You may have heard, if you've been keeping up with our podcast, the release date of that is October 31st. We chose that somewhat intentionally to give us a little wiggle room because you never know about uh, you know shipping and when the inventory will come and if there's any last minute edits uh, you know sometimes things happen um, but we chose October 31st specifically as an in your face to Satan uh, on his favorite holiday and uh, so hopefully that'll be easy to remember and uh, you know anytime we poke the bear we expect uh, spiritual warfare I mentioned in the preface to this book about some of the things we faced uh, over the last eight months since Volume 1 was released and gave a couple of stories about that. And I expect that uh, uh, the Luciferians will be equally displeased with uh, what they read in the second volume. Uh, it's uh, just packed full of uh, just some amazing things. As soon as it's set and we have the proof copy, we'll go ahead and post the table of contents and the preface on the website as we did with Volume 1, and you can kind of check that out. But here's the big secret for our Plum Creek Chapel family, as we did with Volume 1. We'll be providing everyone who wants one a copy of the book, a complimentary copy of the book from Not By Works. And we gave away, I think, 60 or 70 last time. Once those are gone, then the church will continue to purchase them at cost and have them available in the lobby. But uh, we want those to be our gift to you. So those, we'll probably have those at least a week ahead of time. In fact, uh, we've also mentioned, I think, on a, a podcast this past week that uh, to the general public, we're hoping to start taking pre-sales the 24th and then start shipping on the 31st on the release date. So pray for that. Pray for the last minute, uh, you know, things that come that go with, uh, uh, you know, with, with releasing it and uh, putting the finishing touches on it. Very pleased with how it came out. Just really, really happy. It's uh, about... Uh, 15% longer than the first one. It's more chapters, but it's also just more total pages. Um, and um, I hope you'll hope you'll be encouraged by it, but also be informed and you know uh, enlightened uh, by it. So uh, pray for us uh, regarding that. So uh, busy week the last few weeks. Uh, I say this mainly for the folks that are watching online. If you are one of the many people that have sent an email or left a voicemail, I'm hoping to start responding to those this week. It's just been crazy. I feel terrible. I, it's, it's, it's sometimes I'm sitting there working. I've been doing 12 hours a day, just nothing but writing. And then every now and then I'll take a quick break to get something to drink or something. And then I'll think, oh, I really should return this call. Or I really should respond to that email. But I've just had to force myself to not do that. Um, but uh, I can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's been kind of a love-hate relationship with this book the last month because it's just, it's not easy to, 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 to write something like this, especially the chapter on uh, perversion was very difficult to, to just look, read through all that and look through the research and, and put that down. And then uh, the others, the uh, one on paranormal and, and phenomenalistic stuff was just heavy, heavy stuff. So, um, I've, at times I've really been in the groove and, and things have flowed easily. At other times I've just felt like throwing my hands up and saying, oh, I can't take it anymore. But it's, it's a love-hate relationship, but I'm sure once, once it's birthed and it's out there, I'll feel 
I'll love it and uh, and be be pleased uh, with the Lord uh, to use it. So anyway, volume two uh, due out October 31st. Thanks for all your prayers for that. And um, but uh, today let's uh, pick up with our look at the eternal state. We're in Revelation 22. So if you have your Bibles and I hope you do bring your Bibles with you, turn to Revelation chapter 22. And we left off with verse four. And uh, so we'll pick up there in a second just to put it in historical context. We're talking about the very end of the age. So God set in motion uh, a 6,000-year plan. At least it's been 6,000 years so far. Uh, we don't know how long it will um, last. Uh, that's known to him. But the way things are setting up in our day, it sure seems like it won't be longer. By the way, how many of you are aware that the rapture is going to happen today. Okay, that's what a lot of people are saying, and uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, honestly, I've got friends that really, really think today's the day, and uh, and I respect them and love them, but I, you know, I, I have disagree with their exegesis and the way they get there. But I have to be honest, driving up from uh, where we live up to church today. I kept looking toward that eastern sky thinking, well, what if they're right? What if, it, what if it was today? That would be great. And it could be. The thing is, we don't know. It's uh, imminent, which means it certainly could happen today. But uh, since I brought that subject up, if I can digress for just a second, you know, the, the whole notion of the rapture happening on Rosh Hashanah is built upon a merging and a blurring of the, of, of the nation of Israel with the church. And as you know, as we've talked about, uh, you know, forever in this uh, study. Uh, the church is not Israel, and the Israel is not church, and the rules of the game are not universal. Israel has her um, timeline, if you will, and the church has its timeline, and the church is a parenthesis, uh, that's the reason I draw it this way on this chart, uh, in God's program with Israel. So everything you see in, in blue on the screen is related to Israel, God's holy chosen nation. Everything in green is related to the mystery of the church, something previously unrevealed. So to take Old Testament festivals and feasts and timelines and overlay them to the church, I think is just a fundamental hermeneutic mistake. And, um, you know, people will say, well, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. Well, that's true, but it had nothing to do with the day of Pentecost. It was just a coincidence. I mean, it was, there's was no connection that on the same day uh, that Israel celebrated Pentecost, the church, the, God chose to set Israel aside and begin a new work through the church, which Paul tells us plainly in Romans chapters 9 through 11 is exactly what's happening, that today blindness in part has happened to Israel. And the reason Paul says blindness in part is because certainly over the last 2,000 years there are some Jews who have gotten saved. They believed the gospel, trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, thereby becoming part of the body of Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Uh, so it's not total and utter rejection. But as a nation, as a nation, Israel has been set aside temporarily, not permanently, temporarily until the Lord calls the church home. We leave this earth and we begin experiencing the next phase for us in, the, in heaven, which is the Bema judgment and the marriage of the Lamb and those things. Meanwhile, God's focus on earth shifts once again for that final seven-year period back to Israel. That's the way Daniel lays it out. It couldn't be more clear. Uh, we don't read our interpretation of the New Testament back into the Old Testament. If you never read the New Testament, what you see on the ch uh, chart here is exactly what you would come away with. Daniel plainly explains that there will be a gap of time between the end of the 69th week and the start of the 70th week, or the end of the 483rd year and prior to the start of the 484th year. And so what the New Testament does in God's progress of revelation is it comes along and gives us more information about uh, the church, about that gap of time, namely that the church is going to be formed. Remember, uh, Peter said, you know, in the, in the future, I, I mean, Jesus told Peter, in the future, I will build my church, Matthew 16. And uh, then on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was, it was founded, it was built. And so we're still living in that age today. So again, could the rapture happen today? Absolutely. And, and it's certainly interesting when you think in terms of uh, the, the correlation, let's say that, between the Jewish feasts and festivals and the church. 
But to say that the rapture has to happen on Rosh Hashanah is to obliterate the doctrine of imminency because it removes basically 11 months of time, potential dates for the rapture from the calendar. So, but the Bible says it could happen at any moment. I mean, why would Paul say repeatedly, uh, you know, we eagerly wait for the Lord's return if in fact he knew that it was only going to happen in September of any given year? Uh, he, would, he wouldn't say it that way. You, you wouldn't be eagerly waiting, expectantly waiting, the idea there in, in the Greek, it's apikdekomai is the term. Uh, you wouldn't be expectantly waiting in February for something that you know prophetically is not going to happen until September. So it just doesn't add up in my view. But again, I respect those uh, who think that it could happen today. And wouldn't that be glorious to meet the Lord in the air today? And by the way, it's not most of uh, the people who hold that view that it's going to happen uh, in Rosh Hashanah. They, they say September 25th to the 28th. So, you know, if it doesn't happen today, it could happen uh, tomorrow, you know, which would be okay, I guess. I mean, the Cowboys are on Monday Night Football, but I'm sure when I see glory, all of those love for the Cowboys will dissipate instantly, and I won't even remember them. But I am kind of excited about that game, especially after last week's last-minute victory. Um, but so anyway, 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th is what some people are saying. Who knows? Could be. Could be. I respect them. I, I don't kind of camp out there, but I, I think that, uh, you know, who knows? The rapture is imminent. So anyway, we are looking at the end of this, what so far has been a 6,000-year plan. As I outline in the new book, things are just happening so rapidly that it, it just seems abundantly clear that the stage is being set. Pieces are being put in place. We are headed towards this satanically inspired seven-year period. And since the Bible promises that we as believers in the church age will not be here when that seven-year period takes place called the day of the Lord's wrath, um, then uh, that means the rapture must be getting close. So we say, come Lord Jesus. Um, but what's exciting uh, today is as we look at uh, the continued uh, facts about the citizens here, we left off with seeing Jesus and what a incredible moment that will be last week. Uh, we get a, another glimpse uh, as we continue looking here at some of the things that will happen uh, in the eternal state. Now we're talking now not about the millennial phase of the kingdom, but the eternal state. A lot of crossover there, a lot of similar things will be happening, uh, but there's some distinct differences. And I've talked about, I think I uh, put that up here, let me see, the distinctions between the millennial phase of the kingdom and the um, in the eternal state, I don't have that chart, but for example, in the millennium, Christ is the one reigning, the son of David, the, the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, in the eternal state, the Godhead is the one that, that is reigning. There's no temple in the eternal state because the temple was a man-made thing that God promised uh, David and Solomon that it kind of represents his presence on the old earth. But once the old earth is destroyed, then we won't need that temple. There's no... Uh, night in the eternal state, um, th those types of things. Um, so there's some differences, but fundamentally, our relationship with the Creator won't change. We're still going to be doing the same things that God intended uh, for us to do. So the easiest way to picture, if you will, what life will be like in the eternal state is to uh, think what it was like in the garden before the fall. Now, the, the biblical record of the beginnings, that's what Genesis means in Hebrews, the beginnings, uh, is so uh, brief uh, that it, it, it cuts right from creation into the fall. And indeed, we don't think it was very long after creation that Adam and Eve did fall, but uh, still, that glimpse that we get of Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden, talking with God in the garden, in sinless perfection, no, their bodies were perfect, their their, their relationship with the animals and all of creation was perfect. Indeed, they still had dominion over, uh, over the animals and over all of creation, but it was a perfect dominion. It wasn't a contentious dominion like it is now. Um, by the way, one of the things that the, the transhumanists and the, uh, the Luciferians that are trying to roll out this one world system are insisting upon 
is that, of course, mankind is no different than animals, that we are, that we uh, really should worship Mother Earth and that we don't have dominion. They explicitly state that. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, well, now he's King Charles III, but uh, Prince Charles, before, he, uh, before the Queen died, he uh, launched a Terra Carta. Uh, anybody familiar with the Terra Carta at all? I have a section on it in the new book, but it's a huge, huge deal. Many nations have already signed on, but he patterned it after the Magna Carta. Now, surely you're familiar with some of you with the Magna Carta. Well, the Magna Carta, 1200s A.D., uh, the basis for common law, the basis for our Constitution and inalienable rights and all of that. Well, he purposely chose Terra Carta, Terra meaning land, to say that in the same way that mankind has these rights, so do trees and plants and animals and frogs and toads and even cats have these, these rights and that, that we are not in dominion over them and that we're, we're supposed to, uh, you know, that, that Mother Nature has inalienable rights and we can't violate them and these types of things. And it's a really a blasphemous uh, arrangement and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's part of the whole climate change uh, fiasco and hoax and, uh, again, trying to merge the concept that, that, you know, life isn't unique, that there's no sanctity of human life, that we're all just biological organisms that can be tweaked and, and merged with digital organisms and manipulated and given operating systems and all those types of things. So, um, you know, that's... Uh, you know, that's something that is, is another sign of the times that we're headed towards this, this future satanic, tyrannical rule. Uh, they are trying to break down everything God created, and, of course, God's going to make all things new. So in the garden, um, before the curse of sin, uh, Adam and Eve, they had a job to do. They served their creator. They walked and talked with him. They tended the gardens. They did all of those things, but it was all uh, perfect. Uh, and so that's kind of a good, you know, thing to consider when you think about what will life be like in the eternal state. You know, the Bible, as it does with the garden, gives us comparatively little data about all of the details that we wish we knew about the eternal state. But we have enough to kind of understand that life is going to continue on the way God intended for it to uh, prior to our rebellion against God and the fall of man. So... Um, we talked last week about seeing Jesus. Let's look at kind of one step before that in the end of verse 3 and talk about serving Jesus. He says, uh, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now, you know, again, we have this notion that we're all just sort of floating around or flying around with wings, you know, that kind of a thing. And it's this esoteric type arrangement in eternity. Not true. There will be an earth. There'll be a heaven. It'll be recreated in sinless perfection. And we will be doing what we were made to do, which is to serve him. Remember, we've talked about how when God's word says he created man, the highest pinnacle of creation, in his own image, the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that that concept of image was to be an image bearer, a banner waver, if you will. We, are, we were to call attention to the creator that you know people although we know from passages like psalm 19 and others that the, that the that creation also testifies to a creator nobody looks at you know a mosquito and thinks wow that's a perfect picture of god you know look how great god no one looks at a cat for sure and says wow that makes me think of god but they look at mankind created in the image of God, and we, if we're serving him faithfully, are to call attention to God. We're not gods, make no mistake. We, we are created according to a pattern to give God glory. And in the ancient Near East, pagan kings would set up, you know, statues and images all around their territory to call people's attention to them, and they would worship these brick-and-mortar statues. Well, uh, today, we, if we're serving the Lord, are to bring God bring God glory, to represent his glory. Uh, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your heavenly Father who is in heaven. Um, so that's why we were created, to serve him. Uh, 
So several passages come to mind for the church age. First of all, look at Colossians, Paul's uh, prison epistle here that he wrote to Colossae in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. Start out in verse 23, actually. Whatever you do... Do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, if we get there today, when we get to the, the third point that you see on the screen, we're going to talk about rewards and reigning with Christ, co-reigning with Christ, um, the, 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 the inheritance, the reward of the inheritance that Paul talks about here. But... It's important to distinguish theologically between eternal life, which is a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ received simply by faith, and rewards, which are an earned wage. Not everybody's going to get rewards, and not everybody's going to get the same rewards. Based on our faithfulness here and now in our physical bodies as we serve the Lord, we will be rewarded accordingly. And those rewards, as we shall see in a moment, many of them relate to positions of authority and rulership and leadership in the coming uh, kingdom. Um, so, but here we see an example of this service. So, you know, it's not like serving God is just something that we do this side of heaven. We're, we, are, we were created to serve him. We were made to serve him. And we will serve him for all of eternity, but we will do it in the eternal state perfectly. You know, whatever our motive, whatever our hearts desire, however sincere we are in our love and worship for the Lord, there's always that old man lurking beneath the surface that taints everything we do with a little bit of impurity, right? We can't ultimately perfect, perfectly serve the Lord today, uh, though we should strive to do so in the power of the Spirit through the indwelling Christ, living out the new man that we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, all of that. Uh, but someday we will be able to do that perfectly. Uh, another passage from Paul is Romans 12. At the end of uh, Romans where he gives some practical instruction for believers. And he says in verse 10, Romans 12:10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So again, that's what, who we are, and that's you know, what we're about, is serving uh, Christ. Now, during Jesus' ministry, we already see uh, the example of servant leadership and service. Jesus himself set the example, remember many times, by serving the disciples, even though he was worthy of their worship, uh, and we are to follow him. Remember, Paul would later say, after Christ had died, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the church age starts, Paul eventually gets saved on the road to Damascus, or Saul does, and then he becomes the apostle Paul, and he would later say, I think it's in Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so today, that's what it's about. It's about following Christ through the example that he gives us in his word. But if you remember during his earthly ministry, we have that really uh, you know, neat uh, encounter uh, between Jesus and Mary and Martha. Uh, look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse um, 38. Luke 10, 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. So in other words, not all serving is right. You know, there's a right and a wrong way to serve, a right and a wrong time to serve. There's right and wrong priorities in service. And I think today, 2,000 years later, many believers have mistaken doing things for the Lord for the pure heart of service. And here's a perfect example where the good can be the enemy of the best and you can be doing things for the Lord for the wrong reason. Because look what happens. Uh, 
First of all, we know from the biblical record that her service was actually a distraction uh, she, you know, from what she should be doing. Uh, so Martha was distracted with much serving, verse 40, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you care? Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So in other words, Mary was the one truly serving here because of her heart attitude and her heart motivation. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I become overwhelmed with the stress and the, and the obligations and responsibilities of life, ministry, family, whatever. And I, I struggle to prioritize and think, what, what really should I do next? And I... Sometimes the Lord will put this verse on my pa on my heart, this passage on my heart, and I'll think, you know what? At this point, all I can do is say, Lord, I want to serve you, and you're going to have to show me the best way to do that because I'm overwhelmed. I feel deadlines looming and uh, pressure, but uh, I don't want to be distracted from what matters most, which is just loving our Lord and worshiping Him. So that's, that's who we were created uh, to be, to serve the Lord. And so I think every day, you know, a good practice is to wake up and say, you know, Lord, how can I serve you today? It, it, it's, it don't get locked into legalism. As I said, a lot of people think as long as they, you know, pray seven minutes a day and read the Bible ten minutes a day and give 10% to the church and talk to Jesus at least once, about Jesus with someone about at least once a week, and they just have this sort of list of, you know, things that you have to do to somehow be a good Christian, uh, that's legalism. You know, uh, those are the result. Those things are the natural outgrowth of a right heart with the Lord and serving the Lord. And uh, fortunately, in the eternal kingdom, we won't have to worry about prioritizing and, you know, which should we do and how should we, because it'll just flow naturally in, in that sinless state of eternity. So any questions or thoughts about serving the Lord and what that's going to be like someday? Yes. Yeah, that's good. I like that. You're serving God comes first, and then that'll naturally lead to serving others, you know. Um, that's a great quote. Thank you for that. I, you know, one of the things that I think the devil has done a good job of, and, and I get into this in the chapter on pluralism in, in the new book, is convincing people that religion is more, more of a social thing, that it's, you know, the social gospel, right? Um, the, um, the idea that if we can just do more for people, we'll change the world. And somehow God gets, keeps getting pushed to the back, you know, and... That's the reason that more and more churches are uh, embracing ecumenicism and embracing uh, you know, the notion of working together and, and collaborating with other uh, religions and other denominations, even though they have substantive disagreements with them. But today we live in a time when everyone you know, doesn't like lines of distinction. You're mean and hateful and unloving and intolerant if you point out the differences. But in my mind, it's hard for me to think of collaborating with any group uh, that doesn't, for example, believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that salvation is through faith alone and Christ alone, that you know, God created the, the earth and is the one true creator, that Christianity is the only way to heaven. Uh, and, and so you know, I think you're, you're right. Um, we can get that inverted. And, you know, we, we want to help people. We want to serve people. We want to make a difference in this world specifically so that it can then create an, an opening for the gospel, but uh, not at the expense of serving the Lord. Anybody else? Yeah. I understand the concept of serving that involves people, but when we are in the eternal state and we are serving Jesus, what could he possibly need? What could he need? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what do you give someone that has everything they already need, that, that created the world, in fact? Uh, yeah, that's right. A gift card. 
So I. So the question is, you know, it's what. Yeah, just, yeah that, that's right. Um, what do you give? You know, you, you, the question is, you can understand serving in the in the horizontal realm one another, but you know, how, what does that look like when we're talking about serving the Lord? Well. I think it goes to the definition of serving. We looked, obviously, at the passages that say, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. So we know we're supposed to do it, but what does that mean, really? What does it mean to serve the Lord? And I think it's not about giving him things that, he, that will help him, because he's immutable and perfect. He can't get better and he can't get worse. Um, service is more an act of worship, right? Uh, if you go to Romans 12, and this is kind of what Lexi was alluding to in, in my response to her I was alluding to but um, look at Romans 12:1. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable God which is your reasonable service uh, some translations say your spiritual act of service so um, you know serving God is essentially worshiping him it's recognizing there is a God, we are not Him. We're going to offer our very lives as a sacrifice to Him. That's in the Old Testament. The sacrifices of worship prefigured, of course, the ultimate Lamb of God sacrifice. But they were worship. They were acts of worship. And so here Paul is saying our lives are that sacrifice, or should be. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, uh, and then he goes right into the spiritual gifts section, uh, you know, serving God through your spiritual gifts. So I think we have to sort of correlate the concepts of worship with service. And when you think of it in that way, then it, it's a little easier to kind of picture, right? Because we're not we're not raking God's leaves or shoveling his walk or buying him groceries. We're worshiping him. Right? And I think what we're trying to say here is that as we serve others by doing, you know, raking their leaves and those types of things, we are ultimately expressing worship in the Lord if it's done with the right attitude. You know? Now, if you do it thinking, man, I hope old Mrs. Wilson gives me a $20 tip for raking her leaves. Well, then you have your reward. You're probably not going to get rewarded in heaven for that. Anything else? Yeah. Is there any indication that Is there any indication that we'll still use our spiritual gifts in the eternal state? My knee-jerk answer would be no, because I connect the spiritual gifts uniquely to the church, and the church age will be over we'll still be part of the body of christ in that unique role but we won't the church age won't be functioning so to the extent that the spiritual gifts were for you know the church age i would probably say no but eh, that's a guess so you guys always ask these questions that are not you know easy to answer um okay anything else before we look at the next one all right so then not only will we be serving the lord in the kingdom but we're going to be reigning with him if you look at uh, verse five we've already said there shall be no night there they need no lamp nor light of the sun for the lord god gives them light notice that little thing they tag on at the end there and they shall reign forever and ever now, if we didn't have the totality of Scripture and we're not able to compare Scripture with Scripture, we might wonder, what is that about? Or, you know, you know, what's he talking about here? Well, we know that not only will God, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be reigning, but we will be reigning with him, right? Uh, how do we know that? Well, let's look at several passages. First of all, go back to chapter 20. And at the end of the millennium, at the end of the thousand years, this is what happens, starting in verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who did not worship the beast. Uh, I'm sorry, this is at the beginning of the millennium, at the end of the tribulation. Uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness of Jesus, 
for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their heads. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So both in the millennium and in the eternal state, we see references to reigning with Christ. Well, what does that mean? Um, several passages come to mind. A couple of times Jesus addresses this future reign with his disciples. For example, Luke 22. Again, this is during his earthly ministry. As he's walking and talking with the disciples and three and a half years. Uh, in, in Luke 22, in verse, uh, uh, well, in verse 24, the disciples start asking him about who's going to be the greatest. Um, and this is where he begins to talk about servant leadership. Verse 27, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? It's not he who sits at the, is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Uh, then he goes on, verse 29, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this uh, theme of the disciples reigning with Christ is something that comes up again and again. Um, uh, one of the disciples' moms, remember, wanted to ask or asked if her... her two sons, not one of them, but two of them, could sit on either side in the kingdom, you know, be at his right hand and his left. Um, the disciples frequently wanted to know, you know, where their, you know, when their kingdom's going to come and when they would serve. Uh, Luke uh, 19, so that passage we just looked at uh, is during that final week of Christ's life as he made frequent references to the coming kingdom and he rejected Israel and said, you know, because you have rejected me, you know, I'm going to take this kingdom and give it to the future nation of Israel that believes in me and receives me. And he just, you have all of this stuff, you know, overturning the tables, the money changers, the, the scathing remarks that he has for the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23, the cursing of the fig tree, uh, of course, the Olivet Discourse, and then the upper room on Thursday of that week. But uh, just prior to that week, as he's on the outskirts in Bethany, uh, he says this to the disciples in Luke 19, look, uh, starting out in verse uh, 11. And now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You can imagine how intrigued and interested they were in this kingdom as Jesus had repeatedly said you know you're going to reign with me you're going to sit on thrones and I'm going to rule the world and all of this inequity that you're facing now this oppression under the Roman Empire all that's going to be gone plus the disciples knew the Hebrew scriptures they knew God's plan of the ages that someday they would be regathered back into the land and the king of kings and lord of lords himself in the line of David would come and take the throne. They knew all that, and they knew that this was the guy. Uh, what they didn't understand, even though he plainly told them this, especially the closer they got to the final uh, week, uh, he told them again and again he was going to have to suffer first. But here he makes it plain in Luke 19. Because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, he said to them, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said, do business till I come. In other words, you've got a job to do. The kingdom's going to be delayed. I'm going to go away to a far country, but I'll come back, and that's when the kingdom will come. Uh, notice Jesus says, but his citizens hated him. That's the Jews. Um, so the, the servants are the disciples, and by extension, the church. Uh, but the citizens are the Jews. Uh, they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it, indeed, they didn't. They within a few days, crowned him with thorns and instead of a king's crown. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom. So this is something that our preterist brothers and, and other, uh, assuming preterists are saved, or preterist advocates, let's just say, uh, 
teach and miss. They, they miss this whole point here. When does Jesus, you know, give the kingdom? After he's gone away, gotten the kingdom, received it, and come back to give it. So he has to go away before you can have the kingdom. So you can't have the kingdom starting in the first century the way they do. Um, Jesus indeed did go away. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 1, he says, you know, uh, don't, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Just go back to Jerusalem, wait for me to come. Uh, the men in white raiment appear on the Mount of Ascension and say, this same Jesus whom you saw go will so come in like manner, right? So he went and, and, and he's telling us here, I'm going to go away for a while and I'm going to get the kingdom. When I come back, let's see what happens. So it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money and called them that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. In other words, what did you do with this one mina? I believe the mina represents a life of service. This is totally different from the parable of the talents, which Jesus tells a few days later in the context of Israel. Different circumstances, different audience, and different details. In the parable of the talents, a few days later, everybody gets a different amount. And uh, here, everyone gets the same amount. So whatever that represents, we're all in this together. So, And we're supposed to do something with it. But then what does he say to the one who turned the one mina into ten? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. I'm going to put you in charge. You're going to reign. And this is going to be your you know, stewardship. One gets put over five. The guy who does nothing with his mina doesn't get any positions of authority. And we've talked about this before. Um, he still gets into the kingdom, no question about it, but he just doesn't have a, a realm of authority or uh, responsibility once he gets there. Meanwhile, the citizens who didn't want him to reign and rejected him, when he comes back, if they've not yet believed the gospel and received him, what's he going to say? He bring those enemies of mine here who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now, this is a parable, but the Theology behind it is very clear and taught elsewhere. Jesus on, you know, when this is Sunday, then he's giving this. By Wednesday night, he's giving the Olivet Discourse. And, you know, he ex explains that when he comes back, he's going to say to those who rejected him, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So, uh, but for all who believe the gospel, we'll all get into the kingdom. But based on how faithful we were in serving him, we will have different positions of responsibility uh, and authority. Does that make sense? Now, that might, for some of you, that might be new. Maybe you've not studied rewards. We're going to uh, go into this in a lot more detail next week. But, um, yeah. I'm still struggling with the second and third bullet. Um, if we're, this is in the eternal state. Correct. No, we're not all sitting on thrones like Jesus. Okay, we will sit on, what does that say? We will sit on thrones. But not everyone. That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about here. So there's, there's like a, there's a classification? Yeah, absolutely. In the eternal state. Correct. Okay. Yeah, not everybody reigns with Christ. Hebrews makes that clear. Paul makes that clear. Look at 2 Timothy. We're, we can look at these in more detail next time, but look at, or, yeah, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we don't endure, that is, if we deny him, he will deny us the right to reign with him. And, and the Luke 19, the passage we just read, we didn't read the whole thing, but again, the one guy that did nothing with it, he does not get any, he doesn't reign. He doesn't get a position of authority. So not one of the biggest rewards at the Bema seat where we receive rewards is positions of authority. And there will be some people, some believers, according to 1 Corinthians 3, who stand before the judgment seat, and everything they did in life is burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. They get no rewards. So there's another example of someone who won't be reigning. The opportunity to reign with Christ is not automatic. It's a reward. Everyone will be serving. Absolutely. Everyone will be serving. That's part and parcel to who we are. That's That's you know, how we were created to serve him. Had sin never entered the world, everyone from Adam and Eve forward and all of it would be serving Christ daily, worshiping him. So three statements 
Correct. Yeah, I probably should reward that. Some will sit on thrones with Jesus, or we may we have the opportunity to sit on thrones with Jesus, or we may or may not. But yeah, this is I'm speaking not. Uh, I was just kind of summarizing the text here. We, if it applies, is the idea. So yeah, good question. All right. Yes. Okay. They're reigning. Yep, that's not that's not all, right? It was not. He wasn't making a. He wasn't saying, you know, the only people who are reign are these. He's just identifying some of the reign. Jesus told the disciples, for example, that they would reign on twelve thrones, and they've been dead two thousand years, so they're certainly not martyred in the tribulation, right? So that's how by comparing scripture with scripture, we know he's not saying these are the only people that are reign, but this is. One aspect, when we get into rewards, which we'll look at starting next week, we're going to see that martyrs in any age uh, are, you know, have a special reward. If you uh, faithfully serve the Lord unto death and you're martyred for your faith, you get special reward. Yeah. Verse, the first part of verse 5 says, there shall be no night there, that part? Yeah, everybody, like no night, Correct. no lamp, nobody needs it. Right? Yeah. Well, so again, this is, this is basic hermeneutics of comparing Scripture to Scripture. You have to interpret the obscure in light of the clear. We know unambiguously that from passages like 1 Corinthians 3, Luke 19, there will be some people in the kingdom who don't reign. So the they here cannot mean everyone. In the eternal state, not the millennium. Both. Both. Because the, the millennium is when we start reigning or not reigning, and then that just carries over into the eternal state, but that part of it doesn't change. Once you reign in the millennium, you'll automatically Correct, the correct, state. right. Possibly, I'd have to look into that and see. I'm trying to think if there's any scriptures, but in other words, if you are born in the millennium, could your faithfulness during the millennium earn you the right to reign in the eternal state? I don't know. But the, the, the millennium and the eternal state, that is the kingdom. Remember, that's uh, the reason I chart it that way, is uh, so that we think of this as one kingdom. See, the messianic kingdom is the whole kingdom. When, when it starts, it's on the old earth. In eternity, it's, there are some changes, as we talked about, like no temple, no night. The Godhead is the temple. It's not just the Christ on the throne. It's the Godhead. Those types of things. But the service aspect and the reigning aspect, that part is the same. So if you, you know, when the kingdom starts, you're rewarded. You're rewarded, actually, at the beam of judgment during the tribulation in heaven and when Christ comes back we're coming back with him and he'll say Judy you know, here's where you're going to sit Ken here's where you're going to sit JB here's where you're going to sit or to me he'll probably say you just go stand in the corner <laughs> you don't get a throne but, uh, but anyway you know some will be reigning with Christ uh, Hebrews calls that metakoi it's not a technical term for co-reigner but in the context of uh, Hebrews 3 it, it refers to those who, by virtue of enduring, get the position of co-reigning with Christ. Again, Luke 19, same thing. Those who are faithful with what they've been entrusted with now will reign, uh, and so forth. And a lot of other passages, almost, well, actually, every New Testament writer speaks about rewards. So it's a huge doctrine that is often overlooked. But to be clear, reigning with Christ is not automatic. It's something that is based upon our faithfulness, and we were rewarded with it. Uh, and those who reign will reign for eternity. Make sense? Maybe I'm struggling with the concept of reign. It means that, to me, it means that there's a, there's a superiority. Like, you're better, you're the 
Right, because what people think, people have trouble understanding the eternal heaven. Let's just use the metaphor heaven. Uh, because they think it's just this place where we're all equal, floating around. It's not. The eternal dwelling place of the redeemed is a recreated heaven and earth. And in original creation, there were lines of authority, right? God made man the head of the house, and he made mankind the head of creation. And so, so just because Barry's going to be reigning over all of Western Europe, and I might have Sedalia or something, doesn't mean that his experience in heaven is better than mine, right? That's a, a flawed way of thinking. That's a curse of sin way of thinking. We think the bigger your kingdom, the better it is, qualitatively. No. Joy is irrespective of your position of authority. And first of all, we know in heaven, in the eternal state there's no sin. <laughs> so jealousy, covetousness, all of that kind of stuff, the comparative realities, that's a part of the curse of sin. And so... That's what's so what's so they can't enjoy heaven because they're not reigning? Of course they can. Just as they can now. Yeah, there's no your 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 joy, your eternal joy and the joy of the Lord is not tied to your position on earth. It's it's in other words, the experience will be, you know, joyful and blissful for everyone in the kingdom. I won't know how much more enjoyable it is for you than it is for me because I can't climb inside your heart and see that, right? It's like if you both go to a, you know, a movie and, and you come out and you say, man, that was great. And Ken says, yeah, that was great. Well, in reality, just human nature, you didn't both enjoy it precisely exactly the same amount. One of you might have enjoyed it a little more, but you don't know. It was great for both of you. It was a great show, great movie, right? That's the way it's going to be in, in heaven. And, and, and another one last thing, I know we're way over time, but think about it in the earthly realm now. Is it possible for somebody to have more blessings than another person and yet the person with less blessings not be jealous? I mean, is that possible? Sure. I mean, it's hard. <laughs> Our sinful nature wants us to say, oh, that's not fair. How come that guy gets this or how come she gets that, All right? But it's possible. If we're walking in the Spirit, we can have pure joy and see someone else blessed and say, praise God for that. Well, if it's true now, where we're all under the curse of sin, how much more true will that be in heaven? So yeah, it's just understanding, and this is why we're going through this study, is it's understanding the, the uniqueness of what heaven will be like. And, and the millennium is the kickoff party for heaven on the old earth, but it continues on, and, and some will reign and some won't. And that's a clear teaching of Scripture. That's, that's uh, you know. All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a break. Thanks for the great questions. Um, we'll kick off again. We'll say 5 after 10 here for those of you in the building. Uh, those of you live streaming, as always, we start the live stream when the message begins, and that's usually about 1025 to 1030 Mountain Time.